you're going to be, have to be really a, sort of dexterous with your fingers tonight. Because uh, although I'm dealing with five chapters or so, we're just going to be reading a few verses uh, from each. And uh, the reason being for that is that um, Edward boldly took us through um, Isaiah 28 um, last week. And um, there follows a series, if you've read the the prophet Isaiah, and um, I would encourage you to do that. It's an amazing read, but it does get a little bit, um, what's the word, samey at times. Because these five chapters contain, contain six woes that he declares over um, Samaria and Jerusalem and, and the, the culture of the day. And so rather than have six weeks of woes, I'm going to give you one six woes um, all in one go and one hope. I did, I did call this talk six woes, one hope. Woes six, hope one, hope wins. Um, because it does in the end. And just to give you an overview, uh, Isaiah has been called to be a prophet, um, not only to Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria and also to the world. He's been called at a difficult time. He was called uh, um, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a successful king in the eyes of the people. He'd brought prosperity and peace, and that had all been shattered. And so there is uncertainty in the land. There are, there are superpowers that are, are invading, the Assyrians particularly, and then that will lead to the Babylonians coming as well. And uh, things are just in a bit of a mess. And he's called to speak to the nations. It's an awesome task. I don't know if you, when you read it and you think, well, how would I have felt if I'd been Isaiah and been called to do that? And he's also told it's going to be a really tough job because you will speak and they will not listen. Isn't that great to be called to be a prophet and they, God says, well, they won't even listen to you anyway. Really hard task. And as we get to nearing the middle point of uh, the, the book that he writes of his prophecies, the northern kingdom has uh, fallen. Southern kingdom, Jerusalem has survived, but it's only a reprieve. But God's people have broken their covenant with God. They've drifted so far away from God. Religious life in Samaria and Judea has become totally debased and empty. And the prophet warns, if you will not listen to me and to God's word, you will have to listen to foreign voices that will come and take over the land. And so the task of this prophet is not an easy one. But throughout, woven throughout the woes, there is hope. Even as he begins his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 1, it began with a woe. Woe to the sinful nation. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned him, turned their backs upon him. So we're going to read um, some of the woes. Okay. So we're going back to... um, Chapter 28, and they're going to just read a couple of verses, uh, one, one verse from chapter 28, a few from 29, but one verse from 30. They'll all appear on the screen, so I'm not going to actually, I'm going to read them from, from the screen. And does that put you under pressure, Sarah? I gave Sarah a whole list of readings that I wanted on the screen. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower. His glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. Chapter 29. 
Woe to you, Ariel. Ariel means Jerusalem. It's uh, the term Isaiah uses at times for Jerusalem. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. And then a little bit later in chapter 29, he says, The master said, and this is from the message version, so it'll be slightly different. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their hearts aren't in it. Because they act like they're worshipping me, but don't mean it. I'm going to step in and shock them awake, astonish them, stand them on their ears. The wise ones who had it all figured out will be exposed as fools. The smart people who thought they knew everything will turn out to know nothing. Doom to you. You pretend to have the inside track. You shut God out and work behind the scenes, plotting the future as if you knew everything. Acting mysterious, never showing your hand. You have everything backwards. You treat the potter as a lump of clay. Does a book say to its author, he didn't write a word of me? Does a meal say to the woman who cooked it, she had nothing to do with this? I've never read it in the message version. Thanks for that, Sarah. You caught me up. Back to the NIV with chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. In chapter 33, doom. We're back to the message, Sarah. Well done. Doom to... No, no. Oh, where have we gone? Oh, you've you've changed it. That's clever. Woe to you, destroyer, you you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you'll be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Is that all the woes that we've got? Oh, dear. I remember when Edward and I decided to go through Isaiah. We, <laughs> we knew we would come to an evenings like this. How do we have hope when hope seems to have gone? When everything seems hopeless? It was interesting that I, I kind of came down on hope this morning, if you were in our morning service. Um, And it just echoed with tonight as I planned this message. Hope is an essential ingredient that gets us through life, isn't it? When life gets tough, confusing, complicated, when life's circumstances cause us to lose heart, whether that's sickness, worries, difficulties, it's hope that gets us through. Because we believe in the God who has loved us and loves us now, and will bring us through. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says this, and it was picked up in one of Pearl's songs that she chose tonight. We have a hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's a beautiful picture of hope there in Hebrews, that picture that hope is an anchor for our souls. Without it, we could just drift away. 
And in some ways, that's what Isaiah is seeing as he looks upon the nation, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. It's just a drift. It has no anchor. But hope in, in the Bible is that sense of firm, secure, something we can rely on. But hope in today's kind of way that we use it is, is kind of wishful thinking hope. I hope it's not raining when we leave tonight. I hope the train isn't cancelled tomorrow. They're more wishful thinking. But the hope that we have described in Scripture is firm, secure, steadfast and sure because it's based on the promises of God and God never breaks his promises. He doesn't lie. And God wants us to have hope, even through the midst of these chapters when Isaiah is declaring woe on the nations, doom and gloom upon the nations. It's a tough thing to say, but woven throughout, there is hope. At first glance, it doesn't look very hopeful as we read those six woes, all doom and gloom. And God is bringing judgment. And it's all justified. When God brings his judgment, he is always right. Because he is the one who knows everything. The people of God have forsaken the Lord. They've turned away. How do they not expect judgment to come? If we turn away from God, the one who can save us, the one who loves us and gave his life for us, if we turn away from him... We have no other option, have we? Because we've turned away from the hope that we have. And like Isaiah, we live in a world where people have turned their back on God. And so God's judgment would be right. Yet in the midst of all, he offers hope. So through these chapters, if you want to read them at home, have a cheery evening. The people of God are seen as a ship adrift on the waters, and they need to be anchored. So we've reached halfway through Isaiah, and, and it's tough. Prophecies of judgment are tough. Samaria is denounced. Jerusalem is denounced because they've turned away from God. They've run after other gods. And Isaiah uh, talks about it's not that people don't believe in God or don't take God. They, they replace God with other things. Because God takes first place. But when we don't have God as first place, other things become first. Even the priests and the prophets, if you read, it describes them as being befuddled with wine. Even the priests and the prophets are reeling from beer. The whole sense of God's holiness has disappeared. The vision that Isaiah had in the temple when he was called to be a prophet, what was it? It was about the holiness of God. And he looks upon a nation and they've just disregarded God's holiness. They don't care anymore. Even the prophets and the priests. See how far they've drifted. Drifted. And then they make pacts with other godless nations, thinking they will save them. So they are. They're worried about the Assyrians. They're worried about the superpowers. 
But what do they do? They don't turn to God and pray and say, God, would you help us? They turn to Egypt. Maybe Egypt will help us. And God says, that's not going to help you. Making pacts with godless nations will not save them. There's some beautiful pictures that Isaiah paints in these chapters. In chapter 28, he describes um, the bed they have made is too short. And the blanket they have is too narrow to wrap around them. What a beautiful, well, it's not a beautiful picture. It's a horrible picture. Imagine that. You ever slept in a bed that's too short and a blanket that don't go round you? It's horrendous. That's how he describes them. There's no rest. There's no sleep. It's uncomfortable and it's cold. This is the picture, Isaiah says, of a people who have turned away from God. No anchor. In chapter 29, he denounces their false worship. We read it in the message version, which brought it obviously in a different way. But he denounces fake worship. It's not that they've stopped going to the temple. Isn't that interesting? They've forsaken the Lord, they've spurned God, but they still go up to the temple. They still offer their sacrifices. They still go to the festivals. They still sing their songs. But God says, your heart's not in it. It's all for show. As if they can sort of pretend to God. Absolutely astonishing. I've, I've been to a fake worship service. We were taken by uh, our guides in North Korea to a fake church. There was a choir singing and there was a preacher preaching. And the congregation had been bussed in. And we weren't allowed to talk to the congregation or speak to the minister. And they were saying, well, this is to prove that the lie that you've believed in the West is that we, we don't have any religious freedom. But you could see straight through it. If a group of North Koreans turned up in the church tonight, would we ignore them? Would we say, no, we're not allowed to speak to them? It's just fake. And Isaiah says, your fake worship, God hates. Because these were the people of God. They were there in Jerusalem at the temple, bringing their sacrifices, offering their worship. But it was empty. Lip service going through the motions. He uses another description. Um, it was interesting reading it in the message version about the, the meal saying to the woman who's cooked it, you didn't cook me. Isaiah talks about a pot talking to the potter saying, you didn't make me. I mean, we're supposed to laugh, I think, at some of these illustrations. Isaiah is painting you a picture of a pot talking to the potter, saying, you didn't make me. Talking to the potter, saying, you do not exist. Isn't that astonishing? It's a picture, isn't it, of a people that have denied God. You didn't make us. We don't owe you anything. You don't even exist. You know nothing. Isn't that amazing? 
the pot, saying to the potter, you know nothing. It's as if we were to say to God, God, you know nothing. Absolutely astonishing. That's why the woes come. Chapter 30, he describes them seeking their own plans, not God's plan. Chapter 31, he denounces their alliance with Egypt rather than their dependence upon God. These are some of the things he hates. God hates pretense and hypocrisy. If you read through Jesus and you're tempted to think that Jesus didn't speak woes, but he did. I just did a little Google this afternoon. In Matthew's gospel, I picked out at least 11 woes that Jesus speaks. Luke's gospel, at least 13. There's seven in one go in Matthew. And do you know what he says woe to? The religious people. That's who he picks out. The Pharisees, the scribes, he says woe to you. He calls them blind guides, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far away. That's what Isaiah was saying. Jesus describes them as a brood of vipers, snakes. He had a bit of an edge to him, Jesus, at times. God hates pride. That illustration of the pot talking to the potter, it's about pride. We know better. You didn't make us. You don't even exist. Trusting on their own understanding and wisdom. And God hates the pollution of sin. Think back to the, the description of the priests and the prophets as he sees them around drunk. The problem isn't just what they were doing. The problem's deeper than that, isn't it? How come the priests and the prophets have got to that point where they're just relying on alcohol? Something's gone really, really wrong. The deeper thing is they've turned away from God, but when you take God out, as I said earlier, you don't leave a vacuum. Something else takes its place, takes his place. Substitute gods, idols. Same in the time of Isaiah. Same in the time of Jesus. Same in our time. So where's the hope? I know, you've given up. (laughs) Yet through it all, woven throughout all these chapters, where God brings his judgment, there is hope because he calls a people to return to him and be saved. In chapter 28, there's that description of, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In the midst of the judgment, there is a call to repent and turn back. Trust in the Lord. He says that your trust in the Lord will annul your covenant with death. Chapter 29, keep my holy name and you will no longer be ashamed. Have we got some of the hopeful passages? 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you have none of it. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up and show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. And then from 32, see a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Words of hope woven throughout those chapters of woes. Through it all, God longs for his people to turn back to him. God longs for those who are lost to be saved. God longs for his church, his people, to be a shining light in the darkness. We have an anchor for the soul, steadfast and sure. And in repentance and rest, God said, this is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And through those judgment passages, there is still that messianic prophecy He's looking forward to a time when the king will come. See, a king will reign in righteousness. Rulers will rule with justice. And for those who have kept the faith, is bear in mind when Isaiah was speaking these prophecies out, there was a remnant who kept the faith. And whether they gathered in small groups or bigger groups, there was a group who kept the trust in the Lord, they will be saved. And there were to be a light to the nation. For those who kept the faith and ran the race, they will see the kingdom of their God and King. And that lovely prayer in chapter 33 at the end, be our strength every morning, our salvation in times of distress. We would have no argument with God if he just came and brought judgment and said, that's it. This is the time. And there will be a day when Jesus comes again and we don't know when that will be. But as God's faithful people, we are called to be holders out of the hope I'm not sure many of us will be called to be the kind of prophet that Isaiah was. But if you are, then God bless you in that. But all of us are called to be witnesses to the hope that we have. 
But we do recognize that we live in a world that has turned its back on God. And so we pray for the people at work. We pray for the people around us. We pray that they may somehow come into an understanding and a knowledge of God's love and grace because they are separating themselves from the God who gave everything for them. And that's terrifying. And so the church is called to be a light. It's pointing to the hope that we have. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, We have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of the world. And I began with that passage from Hebrews, about fixing our eyes upon Jesus. So run with perseverance the race marked out for you, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the one who is our hope. There we are, we got to the end. David's going to be with us next Sunday night. David Silvestri is going to pick up from chapter 35. Let's just pray together.